Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. All right, so as we've discussed briefly, we're going to repeat last week's lesson about the heavenly man. And as we'll talk about when we get into this lesson, part of the reason it needs repeating is because we're looking at the mystical. And by definition, the mystical is a mystery. It's always good to go back and review these because it's, you know, it's hard to grasp. I mean, if you, if you feel like, what the heck did we talk about last week? Well, that's exactly where you ought to be because it's, there's something of a mystery going on. So this will be part two of the heavenly man. And there's a main point that I want to express here. The main idea is that in the first century, there already exists an idea of something about a heavenly man or the original man, or the first Adam. There's a number of ways you can say it, but it already exists. It's in the common thinking of the people. And then as we go to our New Testament, Paul and John and the New Testament writers are going to address the issue. The problem is, is that it doesn't seem, it seems ambiguous to us. It doesn't seem like it's put together in a sophisticated way. So, but in the first century, the idea already existed that there was some heavenly man, pre-existent heavenly man. In our New Testament, we see it showing up in 1 Corinthians 15.49. So that's our main verse where Paul uses the term heavenly man. Well, if you read that without understanding all of the background of what's happening with this heavenly man, we just read right past it. We won't really know what is he, what's he talking about. So 1 Corinthians 15, 49, heavenly man. That's a common idea in the first century. Then we noted last week, and we'll talk again, John in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word in the first century was basically meant the same thing as the heavenly man. Now, there's not in a million billion years that I would read my New Testament and be able to connect those two because they seem, seems like they're talking completely different things, but they're actually referring to the same idea. So there's a first century writer that we'll, we'll mention again. His name is Philo. Philo, call, he associates the heavenly man with the word. So this is just a, it's a mystical idea, and the hardest part is that we don't have all of the cultural context of the first century that we can then, as we read Paul or recognize what John is saying, put the pieces together to understand something about this pre-existent heavenly man. All right, so this is the basis of the whole teaching. Because if you can get this concept, it's quite powerful, and I'll show you next week some of the aspects of the heavenly man that Paul, particularly Paul, but it's all over the Bible, but particularly that Paul is emphasizing. We'll get to that towards the end of this, today's lesson. All right, so the interesting thing 
is that this heavenly man is depicted as a king. And that's what we've been talking about for the past six weeks now. We started with the Christmas story, that there's the birth of a king. The, the heavenly king is, is joining with the physical body, and he's being birthed here on earth. So that's the Christmas story. Where is the one who's the king of the Jews, is what the Magi say. So it's the birth of a king. But there's more to that. There's more, of, there's more of a mystical idea. So if we look at the Christmas story through the eyes of a mystic, he would say, the Christ, the king, is born in you. So as a Christian, you are to become a little Christ or a little king. So if, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what does it mean to be a king? Well, a king is the freest position in society. So we are to grow, to attain a freedom, even while we're still in the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. It's the highest point of freedom while you're existing in the human body with all of our limitations. And then that led us to then the heavenly man, the king that's up in the heavens. And so these are all, these are all mixing together in a, in a mystical way, pointing to Jesus as the Christ, the king, He's the one through which the cosmos was created. He's the one through which all things are held together. That's the heavenly man. So all of this stuff does tie together, and we're just going to keep circling and circling. You know, we learn every time we pass by something, we learn by going past it the second time. We see something we didn't see the first time. So God willing, as we look again today at this heavenly man, something will you know, it's like a glimpse of something will show up. Okay, so the heavenly man, this is where the intersection becomes difficult. So heavenly man, man in Hebrew, Adam. If you want to go study heavenly man or the Adam, the original man, where you're likely going to find descriptions of it, is in Jewish mysticism. Well, that just throws us for a loop, right? Because wait a minute, why should we why are we going to study anything about Jewish mysticism? Well, because that's where you're going to find these detailed descriptions and I just reread a chapter last night and you think, "Boy, everything he's saying, it's written by a Jewish rabbi, Paul could be saying or Paul does say." It's basically re reiterating the same stuff. So, Jewish mysticism is going to inter intersect with John that's in the beginning, and the Word was the Word, was God, and the Word was with God. Sorry, I know I, I hacked that up. And Paul, Paul does the same thing. So we bump into mystical statements in our New Testament, but we don't treat them as the mystery that they are. Um, but it's just a cool, really cool idea that these things are being woven together. And I think that there's a messianic purpose to all of this weaving together that's happening, that we're recognizing. Now, we need to talk about, I want to address the Bible and, the, and mystical for a second. So, I've used this image before. The Bible is built with depth so that Scripture can be read at many levels. Like, you know, if we're looking at an iceberg, there's, there's a much deeper sense to that iceberg than we see on the surface. Scripture can be read at many levels, and all the levels are true at the same time. Well, how the heck does that work? We have no idea. 
That's why it's inspired text. It wasn't written by a human, or at least inspired by humanity. And so it has the ability where we can read the text at the surface, and we can say, ah, Abraham left Ur. The Jews were brought out of Egypt. That's just surface. This happened. But there's always a deeper level, and you kind of have to work to go deeper into this. And you'd say, okay, well, at the surface, I can read a story about Abraham, but what's the metaphorical story of Abraham? What's the spiritual story of Abraham? You too, just like Abraham, are on a spiritual journey, and you must leave in some sense. You can't stay in the same location you were. You have to depart someplace to a new land. The Exodus story, the entire book of Exodus, is the story of the Jews being brought out of Egypt, but it's also a spiritual growth story. You go through the Exodus yourself. So they, they happen at both levels. And then very deep into this, you enter the mystical, and the mystical gets into things like we saw last week, Ezekiel 1, looking at the, the structure of the cosmos and God's creation in a way, a spiritual way. You're seeing into the spiritual realm. Again, by definition, though, mystical is a mystery. So it gets a little bit difficult to, to see exactly what's happening in the mystical. The more you contemplate the mystical, though, the more God reveals things to you. So there is, there is a purpose in contemplating the mystical. So what's the big issue with the mystical? Well, it's right here. We've looked at this picture before. A number one problem with human beings is we're finite, right? It's an existential problem. You exist, and therefore, because you're finite, we suffer. Like, all of our suffering is because we're bumping against limitations. We suffer anxiety because we don't know the future. You suffer hurt and pain because you're not a superhero. You don't have superpowers. We all suffer the fact that this life is finite. And it's a very difficult thing. This chasm, even though those two fingers of God and Adam look close together, there's really a huge divide because God is infinite. And a, again, by definition, a finite being can't fully comprehend the infinite. It's impossible. The moment anybody says, I know everything there is to know about God, turn the other direction because you know that they don't. They can't. They're finite. God is infinite. By the way, I know I've mentioned this before, but if you look at that picture, right, that um, Michelangelo painted, scholars have noticed that God, that little shell with all the angels or cherubim, it looks like a brain. And so people think Michelangelo painted like, a, you know, the cross section of a brain. So it kind of looks like God, his legs are going out like the whatever, I don't know anything about brains, but anyways, that's just a, it's an interesting image that he would place that, you know, you kind of look at it and you think, what the heck is God sitting in there with all those angels? Well, people think he was, he was trying to represent the brain. Anyways, this is a problem when you get to the mystical, because we're finite and you glimpse the mis mystical, you can't fully understand it. So if we go back to this idea of the mystical, it's so cool, because I know that all of you have at some point glimpsed something about the mystical. The mystical can only be in a glimpse. It's a fleeting sight of something. It's the, you're in the middle of a song or reading scripture. You notice something jumps out at you that you didn't see before. 
Okay, so the mystical. The mystical can only be glimpsed. That's it. You catch glimpses. It's fleeting. You're in the middle of a song, worshiping, and something kind of jumps out at you about God or Jesus. It's then when you have, when you see something mystical, it's almost impossible to express it in finite words. You know it when you see it, but it's really hard to describe. So you can actually practice looking for those glimpses. And what's really interesting is as the mystics all look into the heavens and look at God, they all get the same image. So there must be something there. We would say, well, if you're all seeing the same thing, then maybe that that thing does exist, even though we can only glimpse it. So you can actually purposefully go into mystical practices and try to help yourself do that through contemplation or, you know, intentional prayer, spiritual work. So anyways, one example, very early on when I was a Christian, I heard a pastor say, if you have a brand new Christian, one of the best places to start reading is the book of John. So imagine that that ice that, that iceberg there is the book of John. And his he said, look, the book of John, you can read it at the surface level, and you can understand everything that John is saying at the surface level. But it also exists as a book. The writing of John is so deep that even the scholar who's been a scholar his whole life and has all the awards can read John and see something in the mystical. It's that type of book. So it's at the same time, surface level, everybody can read it. If you're the most learned scholar, you'll still get some, you'll find something in John that you've never seen before. That's how deep John is. And so it's a really cool idea because we have a hard time understanding how it can be both surface and deep mystical at the same time. But God meets everybody. Okay, that's just a little, I want to at least talk about the mystical so that as we come back to this idea of the heavenly man, that we hold it loosely and we look for those little glimpses of truth and we say, wow, that's amazing. That's how you approach the mystical. It's with awe. The more scientific materialism we try to bring to the mystical, the more people reject it. And that's, we don't want to do that. All right, let's see where we're at. Oh, by the way, I, I did put this on your sheet. I, I apologize. Part of the reason that God gives us a commandment that says, don't make any images of me, right? God is infinite and has no images. The moment a human being makes an image of, of God or carves something and said, that's now representative of the God, you've immediately placed all kinds of limitations on it. And God is adamant about not doing that. We have to learn to exist with an infinite God as finite beings. So the moment we place any image around God, it's an image of our own making. And that's one of the main issues. You limit God by doing that. Okay, now we're on number three. Number three, we mentioned this fellow last week, Philo of Alexandria. Alexandria's Egypt. They had a thriving Jewish community and a little bit of competition between Alexandria and Jerusalem because in Alexandria, they would speak Greek to the Greek-speaking world and they were really big on trying to represent Judaism to the Greek-speaking world. So Philo of Alexandria was a prolific author during the beginning of the first century. So one thing, this is what we want to note about Philo, is that he was from 20 BC to about 50 AD, 
which means he's contemporary with Jesus and Paul and John, and his writings were prolific. So they would know Philo and his writings, and they would be common among the Greek-speaking Jews, which we find the references to that the same references Philo uses, we find them in Corinthians, and that's the city of Corinth. The one thing Philo does is he references heavenly man. That's our topic. He references, the uses the phrase heavenly man to talk about the pre-existent man. He also connects the word logos, which is the word. So right there, you have the introduction to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, the logos. So one of the problems with Philo was he said uh, the heavenly man or the, the logos is just an idea. And what Paul and John are doing are correcting Philo. They're saying, no, it's not an idea. The word, the heavenly man, is the person of Jesus. That's the correction to say, no, 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 don't say that's just an idea. We're telling you it's the person of Jesus incarnate here on earth is the word, is the heavenly man and now sits back at the right hand of the, of the Father. So this is why it's important to note that Philo was out there writing, because it means that the language is common within the first century. Okay, let me do a little bit of a timeline. This timeline's on your handout, so you can follow along. If we look through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, so that covers our entire Bible, and we create a timeline here, you can start in the Bible with Genesis, and I'm not going to go read all of these. We did this last week. Genesis 1.26. We get a very strange statement in Genesis 1.26 that God says, Let us, plural, make man, Adam, in our image and likeness. And there's a, now we have a paradox. The paradox is God has no image. And so whose image is Adam made in? Ah, the heavenly man, the first man, the primordial Adam. So there's something, there's an image that they're making man, and we then reflect that image. But God has no image, so we're in the midst of a paradox. So Genesis 1.26. Last week we mentioned Ezekiel 1. So Ezekiel 1 has a vision vision of the heavens. He looks up at the highest heaven, and he sees a man on a throne, a king. And then he says, this man that he sees is the likeness of the glory of God. And then you have to ask the question, well, wait a minute, is he looking at God, or is it, some, is it the likeness of God that's portrayed on the throne? Because if God has no image, then what's this man? Well, it's the heavenly man. And that word likeness goes right back to Genesis 1.26. So we can we can connect these two. And that's perfectly legitimate to connect those ideas of what's happening. All right, that's the Old Testament. What happens next is you've got about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where you're going to be wrestling with what, do all, what does all of this mean? What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? What is this heavenly realm that Ezekiel looked at? And one document that was very popular is called the Book of Enoch. Now, we're not going to talk so much about this, 
but I just want to mention that it tells, it was a very popular document. There are even some early church fathers that thought it should be part of the canon. But the idea is, is Enoch takes a heavenly journey. And on his heavenly journey, and let me just show you one book. I'm just putting it up there for the for those that would watch later. There is, you can find the writings of Enoch all over the place, but here's a book you could look at. Chapter 22 of Second Enoch, he takes a tour of the heavens, and he gets to the tenth heaven. So that's the highest of the heavens, and there's an, an image that is like a glowing light that's a king. It's, a, it's, another, it's the same thing that Ezekiel is seeing. So the, the reason I'm showing you this is there's a progression of thought happening in between the Old Testament and the New. Things are being developed. So we have Genesis 1, Ezekiel sees the vision. You have the writings of Enoch, which happens intertestamental time. Another thing I mentioned last week is that during the intertestamental time, many of the people in Palestine spoke Aramaic. So there are some writings that are called the Targums, the Aramaic Targums. And in the Aramaic Targums, they use the Word as the creative, redeeming force from God. It's the Word. Just like John starts his his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. So what it, here's what it is. The Aramaic Targums. If you spoke Aramaic and somebody was reading the Bible in Hebrew, you now need it translated back to, into Aramaic, kind of like we translate Hebrew into English. And when they would translate it, they would add interpretation. So, for instance, this is one of the Targums that we have, and you can go, you can find these online. And So, for instance, I'll, I'll show you what they do. Genesis 1 in your Bible reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's how Genesis 1 reads, because we're interpreting from the, the Hebrew. But if we looked at the Targum and said, well, how, how is this translated in the Targum? It says this, in the beginning with wisdom. So now they include wisdom. Then it says, the word of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. And so you think, where do they get this idea? The word of the Lord. That's, that's the point. The, the article that I sent out last week was talking about how in Aramaic, the word is used as that force of God and gets connected with the heavenly man. So again, I just want to show you, it's, it's common in the first century that the word means something. When John writes his prologue, it means something to the people who, who hear it. Okay. So we have the Aramaic, the word. You have Philo of Alexandria. He's writing before and while the New Testament is being written. And then you get to the New Testament time. So you have Paul, he uses the phrase heavenly man, and John uses the, the idea of the word. And all of that is encapsulating. It's the same thing. And that's the important piece is to see how this flows through that they're all connected. So you have the Old Testament back here, you have the New Testament up here, and the hardest part is these 400 years that we're, you know, people are almost oblivious that those 400 years passed, 
and the development of thinking that happened between the Old Testament and the New, and then how the New Testament writers are going to say, no, 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 that, the idea of that heavenly man is Jesus. So hopefully that at least timeline shows you a little bit of the progression of how we move from Genesis to then John 1, which is a commentary on Genesis. If I put it in another way, it might look like this. You have Genesis 1.26, there's the image and likeness of God, that's the heavenly man. You have Ezekiel 1.26, coincidentally, maybe not a coincidence, which is the divine glory. There's a throne and the image of a man, so there's, these are now connected. And then, of course, you get to the New Testament. We have John, you have Corinthians, and then even Revelation. Revelation is, I've, I'm, it's another heavenly vision, just like Ezekiel, where he's looking up into the throne room. And basically, all of these are connected across. So that when we read John 1, it's pulling in a whole bunch of information. When we read Corinthians about the heavenly man in comparison with Adam, it's pulling in a whole bunch of information. So there's another way of depicting this idea that this is very deeply rooted in the, old, the text of the Old Testament. Okay, so heavenly man. Last week, I mentioned, or I showed you, this image right here, because if you go look up the idea of the heavenly man, you find this image or something that looks something like it. And next week, I'll show you something a little bit different, but there's nothing codified that says you have to draw it in, in this particular way. But they the idea was that the body of the cosmos, God created the universe, and the image of the universe is also the image of a man. So in Jewish thought, this man, you notice, has a crown, right? So he's a king, and at his feet are the kingdom. And so what we would say is, well, that's the Christ, that's Jesus. So you see that this is, you know, this is all the uh, beginnings of our doctrine of the Trinity, this pre-existent person who's right alongside with God. The idea is, is that it's a representative of the body of the universe or the cosmos, which is a little strange, but okay. So God creates his cosmos. They call this Adam Kadman, which means the original man. It's also referred to as the heavenly man. So these are all intersecting. Remember I, I said Jewish mysticism, Paul and John are all intersecting. Let me just, I'm showing one book. This is just to make sure I get all my references on, on, for the video. This is another, this is just an amazing book called Honey from the Rock by Lawrence Kushner. It's an introduction to Jewish mysticism. And I bought this book maybe 10 years ago. I've read it multiple times. And the first time I read it, I thought, what am I reading? I'm not sure. As you read over and over and over, it makes more sense. You can see more. You have more of a revealing nature to it. Um, it's really a powerful book. And if you read his chapter on the Adam Kadman, the original man, you will think you're reading something from Paul or John because they're reflecting the same exact thing. Okay, so that's just a, a reference. All right, so this is now last week. We talked about this, and this is number five. It's on the back of your handout is in Jewish mysticism, you have this heavenly man. Here's the qualities. 
it's pre-existing, meaning it's it, etern- he's eternal. He's not part of creation itself. In fact, all things were created through him, and he holds all things together. That's what Paul and John say. Through him, all things were created, and in him, all things are held together. That is coming right out of that mystical um, line of their the Judaism of the first century. They also say about the heavenly man, he's there with God. He's the manifestations of all of God's attributes, and he's pure light. So he's the light of the world. Then also, the last one is, he's the word or the logos. And that, of course, is where John's picking up on. And, of course, depicted as a king. Here's what I think is really cool, and this is where I think it has messianic implications. As both Jews and Christians look up to the mystical, it's as if they're looking at the same thing, but from two sides of a coin, right? So if we put this, we put a coin up there, and you have Jewish mystics looking at it, and you have Christians looking at it, and if you say to the, on the Jewish side, what do you see? It's like, well, I see the profile of a man, and there's liberty in 1991. And then you say to the Christian, well, what do you see? Well, I see an eagle in the United States of America, right? So we're looking at the same coin. We're looking at the, the, the heavens of God and the preexistent man, which is Jesus, but we're coming, with, we're coming up with different languages and we're not talking to each other about it. And it's very powerful because one of the images of the, the Messiah and the Messianic age, Joseph in the book of Genesis is an, a type of Messiah. And the one thing about Joseph is his identity was hidden from his brothers. And so in the age of the Messiah, the the age to come, when the Messiah rules, his identity will be made clear to his brothers. Well, that's the Jewish brothers, right? And so for the past 50 years, Jews and Christians have been getting together, and more and more Jews are recognizing Jesus as Messiah, and more and more Christians are recognizing the Jewish nature of our New Testament. And there's something very powerful coming together, that the revealing of the Messiah is actually happening right now. And that's the dawning of the age of the Messiah. So there's something really cool. We just have to use the language to bring all of this together. Okay, let me just pause, because I feel like I'm going a mile a minute. If there's a question at all, you can unmute. I would just want to give you a chance. Did I miss anything? Do you have a question? Do I need to repeat something? If not, please let me know. Uh, You can always email me, and um, I'm happy to answer any questions or point you in the right direction. All right, so here's where we're at. You have the heavenly man, the the heavenly Adam, who's created. It's the likeness of the glory of God. That comes from Ezekiel. You have the earthly man, the earthly Adam also created in the likeness of God and the likeness of the heavenly man. And oh, by the way, then, as what we see in the New Testament, you are created in this image as well. You share both likenesses. You share the heavenly man, the likeness of the heavenly man, and you share the likeness of the earthly Adam. So part of what Paul is saying is we need to connect and develop and grow spiritually to grow more in the likeness of the heavenly man. So there's an idea, a very ancient idea, 
everything that exists on earth has a counterpart in the heavens. So for instance, if you have a human being here on earth, we must have a human being as a counterpart in heaven, a heavenly being. And that's what that's how an ancient person would interpret Genesis 1, that you're made in the image of this something in the heavens. You remember when Moses goes up on the mountain and God says, make, build this tabernacle according to the image that I showed you. So God opened up a window to the heavens. There's a heavenly tabernacle. There's a heavenly temple. Rebuild that heavenly temple. So in the, to the ancient mind, everything up in the, in the heavens is then found here on earth. And then what, what the Bible is saying is that the image of this heavenly man then now is part of you. You become part of that image. And one of the main goals as we grow in Christ is to become like Christ, to grow to conform to that image. And I'll show you a couple of verses here in a minute. So this is the main idea that we need to recognize, have the veil lifted, so to speak, so that we can see the image in which we're supposed to reflect and then move towards that image. That's becoming Christ-like. All right, now we're to the text. Let's go two places that Paul is writing. We did this one last week, so if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49, we'll go over this one a little bit quicker because we did it last week, but this is where Paul's going to start comparing the heavenly man, the heavenly Adam, with the earthly Adam. So 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 47. So Paul's writing, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And his first and last there is, what do we see here on earth? We saw the first Adam, that's the, be, that's the being that we reflect. And then there's the last Adam, that's the Messiah who showed up. It's a life-giving spirit. Paul says, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. So here he's addressing that concept of the heavenly man. Now verse 48. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Meaning, when you're of the earth, you're going to reflect the image of that earthly man. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. So that's the comparison. We have an earthly nature and a heavenly nature. We need to develop the heavenly side. Next verse is, is going to explain that. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. That's the Christ. So to become Christ-like is to bear that image and reflect that image back up into the heavens. All right, now, let me show you a second one. From Paul, and also, by the way, writing to the Corinthians, but turn to 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. And what we're going to note is a couple weeks ago when we talked about the idea of being a king, being free, that this verse came up, 2 Corinthians 
What we didn't look at was the very next verse, which talks about our transformation. So 2 Corinthians 3.17 is the one about freedom. Now Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So as we grow in our spirit, the idea is to become as free as possible, like the king. Be in the world, but not of the world. Not be burdened spiritually by all the crud that goes on in the world. That we can exist, that it's possible to exist at peace with God right now. Now comes verse 18. This is the most important verse of all. So all of us who have had the veil removed, by the way, verse 18 I'm taking this from the New Living Translation because it makes, I'll sh- the very next part is more accurate in the New Living Translation, I think. So all of us who have had the veil removed, remember, something is lifted when we begin to see Jesus as the Christ. It's like we have the revelation. Something's lifted. And then it says, we can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. So not only can we see it, but we ourselves begin to reflect the glory of the Lord. Then Paul says, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So to become Christ-like is to have the veil lifted, to see the King in all of his glory, and then to be transformed, changed into his glorious image, so that we then begin to reflect light into the world. It's one of my favorite passages in Corinthians because it speaks so loudly to what we're supposed to do as part of our goal walking with, with Christ in the world, is to begin to reflect his image into the world. Now we're going to, I want to turn, that's Paul. Now I'm going to turn to John, and we're going to go back to John 1 first. I'll review that, and then I'll take you to the final one, which is John showing us the king. So if, again, if you want to turn to John 1, 1 through 5, this is the famous prologue. And this is where John, so if you, if you had a chance to read the article that I referred to last week in my email that I sent out, that the idea of in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, would be very, would be common, something He's playing with something that's common to first century Jewish thought, or at least even in the, in the Greek speak, both Greek-speaking Jewish diaspora and the Aramaic-speaking Jews in Palestine. So it's going to be all about the Word, and the Word is that heavenly man. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Logos, was God. They're one and the same. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John starts his gospel by saying, this is Jesus. He's that heavenly king. He's come down to earth He's manifested himself. John uses the phrase, he tabernacled among us. It's like he put on an earthly, fleshly tent, and he tabernacled among us. And now what I want you to do is turn to see how is John going to end his story. So turn to John 19, because here 
there's something that only John records. It's about how they're going to present Jesus. It's one little statement from Pilate, but only John records it. So John 19, 1 through 5. Now what I'm going to do, I'm only going to read, I'm going to read verse 2 and 3, just to show you how is Jesus being presented. So John 19, if we look at verse 2 and 3, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. Now right there, what is he, how are they dressing him up? What's the image? A king. He has a crown. Where do they get a purple robe? Purple was a uh, controlled cloth in the first century by the Romans. You weren't allowed to have a purple robe. It wasn't like they ran out to marshals and picked up a purple robe. Where do you get a purple robe in Jerusalem? You're not going to have many. They have a purple robe. That's the royal color. He has a crown. He's the king. So John's presenting this, the person who came down from heaven to earth and manifested himself here, Jesus of Nazareth, is the king. Then verse 3, they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, king of the Jews. The point is, the Romans are recognizing he's the king. Now here's verse 5. Verse 5 is really the, this is the main one I want to get to. John 19, verse 5. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, now again, he's repeating that to you. He's repeating it because he doesn't have to repeat it. Pilate is bringing Jesus out. And Pilate says to them, here is the man. Now, how do you say the man in Hebrew? Ha-adam. It's like he's, on how many levels is this true? He's saying, well, here's the man, but what man is this? It's the Adam. Ha-adam. And it's so powerful because there's, on many levels, it's true. And the man is the king. So John, in a very mystical way, is showing us two sides. It's like, here's Jesus, the king, but he is the man, the, uh, the Adam, that heavenly king. Again, the depth of John is remarkable. It's so important for us to see that the reason he's presented as a king is because he is the king, right? So if we go back to this heavenly man picture, you'd say, well, he is the Christ. The Christ is the king. So we're looking at Jesus, the pre-existent son, who, whom all things are created, and then we bear the image of the heavenly man ourselves, and we are supposed to be moving to develop that. Hopefully that helps at least, I don't know if that muddied the waters or helped, helped at all, but even if you caught a glimpse of something in the mystical, hang on to that little glimpse because that's where God can work. When you get a little sliver of something in the mystical and God can work. Now, what we're going to do next week, because we're going to keep going with this, you see this, um, this image of this heavenly man, and there's actually something quite powerful about the way it's depicted. There's 10 attributes, or it's the 10 emanations of God that create this heavenly man. And as we're looking at this picture, we can see little spots, like here's one that's wisdom, and then you have intelligence or understanding, and then you have beauty and love and justice. 
So all of these are representative not only of the heavenly man, but they reflect our own soul. And three of the highest attributes that are inside of this, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, I want to show you next week how the Bible engages these three attributes, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and then how Paul is engaging these three attributes, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. These are the three higher attributes of the soul. This is what we're going to do next week. We're going to take this picture and then go in to the picture and, and talk about what are some of these aspects and where they come from in the Bible. All right, so next week we'll look at these wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and then talk about how we that helps develop our own soul as we grow in Christ, and we'll see how that Paul reflects that. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.